Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, and thanks for tuning in to our newest episode of Essential Antitrust. Now, before we get to our topic of the day, I just have a bit of housekeeping news. In April, you may have seen that we launched a sister podcast series called Essential Foreign Investment. This is a great new podcast series that will be launched every quarter where our foreign investment colleagues will break down all the latest developments happening in foreign investment and national security reviews around the world. So if you haven't yet tuned in, be sure to check that one out. But today on Essential Antitrust, we're going to be talking about merger control. So in the past months, it seems like everywhere you turn, regulators and politicians are talking about merger control. And between proposed legislation in the U.S. to a new Article 22 policy in the EU to a number of new global cooperation efforts among enforcers, to say there is, I think, a lot happening in this area would be a major understatement. So fortunately, I have three of my colleagues here to help break down the developments that we're seeing around the world. Uh, first, we have Megan Rissmiller, who's a partner in our competition group in Washington. Hi, Megan. Hi. Then we have returning guest, Alistair Chapman, who's a partner in our competition practice in London. Welcome back, Alistair. Thank you. Hello. And last but not least, we have Sasha Schubert, who's a partner in our competition practice in Brussels. Thanks for joining us, Sasha. Hi, John. Delighted to be here. So, Megan, maybe I can start with you. So, you know, before we get into some of the specific policies and changes that are floating around, what do you think is actually driving all these developments? Sure, Jen. So, you know, I, I think there's a perception by some politicians and officials on both the left and the right that there's been too much consolidation across industries. And the focus of the political and sometimes public ire has been consolidation in tech, social media, healthcare, pharma, among others, really industries where innovation is important and the products and services actually affect consumers, so real humans like us. And those who are critical look at the traditional tools and approaches of merger control and question whether they're still fit for purpose, particularly in these spaces where there is that rapid technological innovation. Yeah, and I agree with that, Megan. And I suppose one thing, it, the focus has been on big tech and pharma, but I think there's a bit of a change in the air. And my sense certainly is there's a growing sort of belief in some of the agencies that just big is bad, almost regardless of the sector. Uh, and that's driving a bit of an inherent suspicion towards mergers more generally. And those of you who watch HBO and John Oliver, I mean, he started talking about corporate consolidation. Uh, so when it's got to that stage, you know that something's up with the, the public and political consciousness. So, Alistair, that's an, a really interesting point. And Sasha, maybe, you know, from where you're sitting in Brussels, does it feel like this is the beginning of an actual paradigm shift? Or is this just kind of the usual criticism and noise that always exists around any kind of regulatory policy? Yeah, I think paradigm shift is a big word, but there's a definitely a strong sense that major changes are underway. There are changes in the ways the authorities communicate, uh, the public discourse is changing, there are changes in the laws. And I think we also observe uh, a changing mindset within, within regulators. Um, and this is, I believe, all linked to what, what Megan and Alistair said. Um, in, in a way, there is this overarching concern about too much concentration. And uh, this translates uh, not only into concerns where large firms, where two large firms merge, but also where a large firm buys a small, even a very small competitor, or where small firms 
merge in a, in a concentrated market. And I think maybe something to add to, um, to what Megan said, we have to recognize also in Europe that um, antitrust authorities are not operating in a political vacuum. There is this debate um, about growing inequality, which is seen as one of the root causes of populism. And the argument is made that concentration contributes to inequality. So uh, whatever you might think about this argument, competition authorities, including in Europe, no longer want to be perceived as technocrats. They want to be part of the solution, uh, the solution of societal problems. Um, and this is why you see more and more vocabulary such as fairness, inequality popping up in the speeches of, of regulators. So to an extent, um, what we see here um, is quite unusually, I guess, in Europe that the competition debate is becoming somewhat less technical. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Sasha. I think it's, uh, you know, as we said before, there really is this alliance right now between both the political left who traditionally have been skeptical of big business and also a portion of the right who now really look at global companies with uh, increased suspicion. And, you know, it is sort of a bit of romanticism around small or mom and pop businesses, I, I think, um, which is, you know, somewhat true in the US and, and in Europe. I think that's right, Megan. I think it is true in Europe as well. I think we've moved maybe to uh, perhaps neutrally put a different place in the cycle. I think we're seeing a, a move in Europe in academic circles uh, and increasingly at the agencies as well to really tear up the old playbook uh, and start increasingly with the presumption that mergers uh, maybe aren't welfare enhancing. So whereas before mergers tended to be given the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think now we're moving to uh, to a more hostile environment. Yeah, I, I think just to tag on that, you know, in the US, certainly the vast majority of intervention historically has been for horizontal mergers, with vertical consolidation mostly being accepted as good for consumers, if not by the agencies, then by the courts. But we're seeing in these early days of the Biden enforcement reign that vertical deals are getting more scrutiny. And in public stats from the first quarter of 2021, three of the four significant U.S. merger investigations that concluded in 2021 have raised vertical concerns, which signals an uptick in interest in this area. So again, it it is a skepticism potentially of uh, the beneficial aspects of, of transactions for consumers and also potentially for industries more generally. And that focus on vertical in the US is something that we're looking at quite closely from Europe. So back in the day, you know, it used to be reasonably comfortable that it would only be the European regulators that looked at vertical issues. So if you think back to GE Honeywell, uh, there you know, the Europeans blocked the deal, the US waved it through. Even in the recent London Stock Exchange Refinitiv deal that we were doing, it didn't attract intervention from the DOJ at all, but it was the vertical issues that got scrutinised in Europe. And if that's changing and we're having to think about vertical issues on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, then that makes things, I think, increasingly complex for, for some, some deals. Yeah, and it seems there's more convergence, almost uh, more transatlantic convergence these days between Europe and, and the US on, on these conglomerate vertical deals. Whereas I think, you know, in Europe, authorities have always been a bit more skeptical about those deals where the real change is taking place, as you said, Alistair, in Europe is on um, questioning, in a way, um, the efficiencies which mergers bring, which horizontal mergers bring, and in a way questioning the, the classic distinction between mergers and cartels. 
because if you want, there is in the legislation, there's a baked in presumption that mergers are good. If you, if you look at a situation where two competitors would agree on price, this would be prohibited as a cartel, but if they merge and then set a uniform price, um, typically, um, you know, the merger will be waved through. So why is that distinction? That distinction is because there is a presumption that mergers would typically generate efficiencies. And I think this is getting a little bit lost in the, in the debate where mergers are, at least large mergers, are increasingly approached like, like cartels. And I was quite struck actually by the, the recent statements of the, uh, the three authorities uh, from the UK, Germany and uh, Australia, who said that actually quite candidly in their, in their joint announcement, where they were really saying, we don't have much faith in all these efficiency claims that, um, that merging parties bring. And very often mergers will not generate efficiencies. That's a real shift. And maybe if I can just add one, one observation, <clears throat> because I think it's related to that, is a bit of a, a return of the structural approach, as we call it amongst <laughs> merger control uh, nerds. So for a long time, I think the modern approach to, uh, to merger control was to get away from the number of players and, and a fixation on market shares and look at uh, the economic effects. But what I see uh, more and more also in the practical dealings with the authorities is that actually there is again a, quite a focus on market shares. There is again a focus on the number of players. And I think um, a reduction from four to three, um, uh, for example, on average, is today more difficult to, um, to get through than it was maybe five or, or 10 years ago, simply because of the numbers game or because of high market shares. So I think all of that is a, is a really good 20,000 foot view of some of the big trends that we're seeing. But, you know, of course, this isn't all just hyperbole. And we're seeing a lot of really concrete proposals to make changes to the NHS laws on the table from structural presumptions to, to all kinds of things. And I wonder, Megan, if you can walk us through a little bit of what's happening in the U.S. on this front where we're seeing a lot of uh, action. Sure, Jen. So as most of you know, listening, U.S. antitrust doctrine is really enshrined in judicial precedent. And things like truly significant changes to things like the structural presumptions, burdens of proof, etc., would really need to come through legislation. And with Democrats narrowly in control of the House and Senate, and with some Republicans calling for antitrust reform, this suggests the possibility of consensus about some changes. But I am skeptical that some of the most headline-grabbing reforms will actually come to pass. So things like codifying structural presumptions against transactions resulting in market share above a predefined level, shifting the burden of proof to parties to demonstrate that their transaction would not reduce competition, or things like presumptions against acquisitions of startups by dominant firms, I, I don't really think those are likely to come to pass, quite honestly. On the other hand, this setup in Congress really makes it easier to get more progressive enforcers confirmed. And they can accomplish much of the reformist aims simply through policy and actions facilitated by the additional funding, which is an area where I do think we're going to see bipartisan support. And we, do, we have seen it already. Yeah, I mean, if I can chip, chip in on, on the European side, I think you, you have those proposals, uh, those discussions as well about reversing the burden of proof, in particular, where big tech firms are buying uh, startups. But so far, I think it's, it's been in reports, it's been considered, it hasn't been, uh, been implemented. What we do see, though, is more broadly outside of big tech, that competition authorities are arguing that the burdens imposed on them for, for showing competitive harm are too high. 
they are saying that um, with uncertainty and with uh, the complexity that these markets uh, offer, it's impossible for them to prove to prove harm before it's too late. And again, if I can just quote from the, the recent announcement that I referred to earlier of the, uh, the three authorities, um, they're saying, when faced with uncertainty, I quote, it is important that competition agencies are willing to challenge the presumption that mergers should only be restrained where there's certainty that serious detriment will result. So in other words, um, they are arguing for a lower standard of probability, probability of harm going forward. So I think that is, that is certainly a topic which uh, we will see also play out in front of the courts. Yeah, that, that's interesting, Sasha. And picking up on the point you just made about tech being in the crosshairs here, you know, I think Megan and Alistair previously mentioned pharma has also been at the center of some of these discussions. And those are both industries where in the past regulators have focused a lot on um, innovation and on potential competition. So do you think that, you know, the EC is going to become even more aggressive on those, you know, somewhat sort of more novel theories of harm? Yeah, the well-known example by now, I believe, is the Dow DuPont merger <clears throat> a few years back, where the um, DEC adopted a quite uh, expansive innovation theory of harm, looking basically um, beyond uh, overlaps at broadly, just more, much more broadly speaking, uh, harm to innovation. And today, almost every big merger um, is, is being looked at, at under an innovations angle by the Commission. And where we see this particularly strongly is also in pharma, where in the past the commission used to look at pipeline products, but more sort of the late stage developments. And they're going uh, back uh, now more and more into the early stage developments. So theories of harm, which are becoming more uncertain or more speculative, um, if you want. And Megan, how about in the US? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's similar. I mean, there is a real focus on issues related to acquiring potential rivals or acquiring nascent competitors. And the issue with those are really related to innovation and a concern with stopping innovation before it really has a chance to grow and, and to flourish. Again, as I said, I'm not sure that we'll see those radical changes in terms of legislation to pro proactively prohibit those kinds of deals, but we'll certainly see more scrutiny in these particular areas. I think if I can chip in in the UK, I mean, the, the CMA as ever doesn't want to be left out here. So it is also turning its attention to, to innovation and to potential competition. It's just put out a revised set of merger assessment guidelines. Uh, and as part of that, it's included um, a new non-exhaustive list of scenarios where it's more likely to find a, a problem, a substantial lessening of competition. Uh, and these include examples of innovation, uh, and of new or nascent markets or services. Uh, and I think it reflects a genuine belief at the authority that, that killer acquisitions in particular are real uh, and it doesn't want to miss uh, intervening in those ones. There's a focus as well on dynamic competition where existing and potential competitors interact in an ongoing dynamic competitive process. So for example, by investing in innovation and the CMA is very keen to, to preserve that. I think it's particularly striking, and Sasha has made this point already, but I do think it's really worth, worth focusing on. The CMA went out of its way to make clear that some uncertainty about the outcome of the investments or innovation, or indeed the way the market is going to develop, doesn't preclude the CMA from assessing the impact of the merger on the dynamic competitive process. Uh, and it does feel... 
to practitioners like a like a calculated attempt to lower the burden of proof on the CMA. And I think generally, actually, these new guidelines give the CMA a bit more flexibility uh, to find problems. So they've been very clear that the substantial in substantial lessening of competition actually can be interpreted very broadly. It's not necessarily a bright line test. Uh, and then contrary, actually, to what Sasha was saying, with an increased focus on market shares, actually, the CMA has gone out of its way to remove some of the thresholds uh, and the rules of thumb. So it used to say that you know, it typically got particularly interested in shares above 40%. It is silent in that now. Uh, it's much more likely to look at things in the round. Uh, same with coordinated effects. There used to be three criteria that had to be satisfied. Again, it's an in-the-round assessment now that the CMA is going to pursue. No, I just wanted to comment on that one because that's really interesting um, what, what you're saying. And I believe it's, it's actually the same in Europe. The structural approach is back uh, for the big mergers. But if you have a merger with parties with small market shares, the authorities still have the ability to rely on the SEEK test and, for example, find harm based on close competition with a 25% combined market share. So in a way, uh, it's a bit of a catch-22 for, for merging parties. Uh, it feels like there are no safe harbors left. You know, this is a slightly different point, Al, but going back to something you said about regulators feeling like they need to look farther out into the future on impacts on competition. I think it's it feels really uh, almost in some respects for parties a bit hypocritical because we've always said you should look at competition coming down the pipe and you shouldn't worry about our deal because there's all this change that's coming. And now the regulators are saying we have to be worried about your deal because there's all this change coming. And so you really have to have it. You can't have it both ways. And so I think that's where we do need to continue to challenge these discussions and sort of push these arguments because it has to work on both sides. And in a way, I believe the COVID crisis has increased the, the problems because the regulators have really been faced with extreme uncertainties, being unable to perform a forward-looking assessment because nobody knew last summer how the markets would develop. And so from a regulator's perspective, what should the conclusion then be since they bear the burden of proof? Should they have cleared every merger? Or should they, uh, at that stage, be able to clear based on a lower probability? I think there, that's where many authorities have realized that um, they may have to adapt the standard of proof, at least in special situations. Yeah, and we've seen that play out in, in real time in the UK, in the JD Sports case, where the CMA didn't take into account the impact of COVID on bricks and mortar stores. So it just said, look, it's all too difficult, really, and too speculative, and therefore we're not going to take it into account. Uh, and that's one of the rare cases where you know, we were actually able to overturn them before the courts. Uh, and I think they've learned from that, uh, and they now sort of reference COVID and reference a bit of uncertainty in their decisions, but allow themselves the ability to, to sort of look through that to when the, uh, when the markets are going to return to normal. So, you know, one of the points that, that you've all mentioned is this idea of picking up deals where a small competitor, a NASA competitor is being acquired. And historically, one of the big questions here has been how do regulators actually get those deals in front of them? Because they don't always trip the merger control thresholds. And here, I think we've seen a lot of, of movement, especially in the EU and the UK. And Sasha, maybe you can, can talk us quickly through what is happening with the sort of rewrite of the Article 22 playbook. 
there's clearly initiatives uh, across Europe to uh, loosen, in a way, the bright line jurisdictional rules uh, to give the authorities more flexibility to, to catch those mergers that might fly under the radar. And I think we've seen it play out in, at EU level in the sense that the Commission has recently changed its policy, basically a 180-degree uh, U-turn compared to its previous policy, whereby it now encourages member states to refer certain cases to the EU, even where the member states don't have jurisdiction. And that's um, come overnight, but is already being applied in a first test case, which is Illumina Grail. And of course, it raises the question whether uh, the Commission actually has the power to um, uh, implement such a fundamental change just by changing a policy, uh, as opposed to a change of the laws. Uh, and this question is, is currently being uh, appealed. So it's going to be interesting what, what the court is going to say about that. But in the meantime, um, there are some practical takeaways for companies from, from this change. And it starts with designing your deal documents where you have to uh, provide for new types of uh, condition precedents. Uh, you have to think about risk allocation. Uh, you even have to think about the possibility that your deal could be challenged after it's being closed and referred to the EU, which is, which is entirely possible under the new regime. So clearly, uh, a lot more uncertainty, at least for those deals which are likely to be to be caught, such as pharma and, and tech mergers, as we said earlier. Yeah, and Al, on the UK side, I mean, the CMA has shown a willingness to get a little bit creative with its share of supply test. Can you can you walk us through, you know, what some of the developments have been there? Yeah, of course. And Luke, I think most people doing global deals now cast a slightly cautious eye in the direction of the CMA because it has been so interventionist recently. I think that's because post-Brexit, the CMA wants a seat at the top table uh, and to be seen as leading in the in the global conversation. So post-Brexit, the CMA is now uh, reviewing a lot of deals in its own, as well as the EU, rather than just going to the EU. And it is able, as Jen, you're saying, to create a to take a pretty creative uh, approach to actually taking jurisdiction. Uh, the share of supply test that you reference is it's pretty nebulous. Um, so the CMA can take jurisdiction where the share of supply of goods or services of 25% or more is created or increased in the in the UK or a part of the UK. And whilst that's already a pretty flexible threshold, the CMA's creative application. Uh, is stretching the test, I think, even further. And there's quite a few examples now of where it's done that. So Roche Spark, which was about the acquisition of a biotech pipeline treatment portfolio, where the target didn't actually supply any products in the UK. But the CMA nonetheless considered that the threshold was met, partly due to Spark's global R&D activities, uh, which it thought formed an integral part of the process of making treatments available in the UK. And then because the parties together had a 40% plus share of the number of UK patents procured from the Patent Authority in relation to the treatments in question, which is haemophilia, uh, and also because they had a 40% share of the number of UK employees engaged in activities relating to that treatment, uh, notwithstanding that this information was actually not really readily available to the parties themselves. MasterCard Nets, another example. Um, here, the CMA deemed there only to be eight credible suppliers uh, bidding to supply real-time payment capability services for a particular UK tender, of which the parties were two, 
and therefore basic maths, they had 25%, and the share of supply test was again net. Uh, and that was a similar sort of approach taken in Sabre Fair Logic, uh, which was caught on the basis of a 25% share of supply to a single customer. So I think the sort of lookout here is if your deal has any potential to raise competition issues, then the CMA is likely to be creative in seeking to take jurisdiction. And it is, of course, seeking to incentivize merging parties proactively to, to bring their deal to the CMA. So thanks for that, Alan. And I think, you know, it's interesting to hear what the UK is doing here, but it seems like another thing we're seeing is kind of a new dawn of interagency cooperation on some of these issues. And, um, you know, Sasha has talked a bit about the, the joint UK, Germany and Australia statement on merger control a couple of weeks ago. And Megan, I understand that there's also a multilateral pharma working group that's been set up by, I think, Canada, the US, UK and EU. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, it's the multilateral working group to build a new approach to pharmaceutical mergers, and it's uh, Canada, the EU, US, the UK. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about what the regulators are, are doing in some of the prior discussion between Al and Sasha on Article 22 and, and the CMA taking jurisdiction. In some respects, it feels like the regulators are competing among each other to be the most um, interventionist. But in other ways, there is this cooperation and collaboration. And the example is, of course, this uh, working group to look at how to evaluate pharmaceutical mergers potentially differently. The statement uh, from acting chair Slaughter really illustrates what this working group is intended to look at. You know, they're, they're looking at drug prices, they're looking at concerns about potentially anti-competitive conduct in the industry. And so there's a sense that collectively the regulators may want to rethink their approach toward pharma merger review. So I think that's a, a really um, a good example of the collaboration we may see going forward. Nothing has come out publicly from this working group yet, but it really is a sign of things to come. And Sasha, how about on the on the EU-UK front? I mean, post-Brexit, is that cooperative? Is it not cooperative? How is it playing out? <laughs> well, that, for the time being, um, there are, I think there have been some surprises post-Brexit. Uh, we all know there have been tensions between the EU and, and the UK, and to an extent, uh, there have been some spillovers maybe into, into merger control um, in the sense that, yeah, as, as Alex there was saying earlier, the CMA is, is trying to position itself as independently minded and not to be just a follower, but um, an authority which is ready to challenge uh, the EU's uh, past approach uh, where appropriate. And, and this, uh, of course, gives rise to some concerns that there might be um, inconsistent outcomes. Um, and, and I think it is indeed something that we're not used to, but going forward, we have to make sure we have to take proactive steps that the outcomes of uh, UK and EU uh, proceedings are not diverging, that you don't get a remedy in one jurisdiction, which, which might not be entirely uh, compatible with, with a remedy in another, or, or even a prohibition in one, one jurisdiction when, when you get a clearance in the other. So, so in this uh, sense, an interesting point to note is that the Commission is now pushing for a cooperation agreement um, on competition matters um, between the EU and the UK. And that's, of course, very much, uh, very much welcomed and, and will hopefully uh, deal with some of, these, um, some of these issues. So if you're a company facing all of this uncertainty, 
you know, what does this mean for the bottom line? Are we expecting more challenges, more prohibitions? Um, and Megan, maybe I'll go to you first where, you know, we do still have the court system to keep all of this in check. How do you think the courts are going to respond to all of this? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, as we've said, even without changes to the antitrust laws in the U.S., we, we do expect more aggressive enforcement or tougher enforcement. And um, as the chairwoman of the FTC has said, they need to be more willing to bring and lose cases potentially. And so part of the agreement in Congress on the need for more funding, that really could facilitate the FTC's stated aim of bringing and losing potentially more cases in court. And in court, certainly these novel or more reactionary or aggressive interpretations of harm can face challenges or are likely to face challenges. Federal courts still tend toward the conservative in the United States, and the Trump administration did its part to really appoint more conservative judges. And these judges hew closely to precedent, which, of course, doesn't capture these newer theories of harm put forth by today's critics of big business. So they're more focused on things like consumer welfare, structural harm, effects on current competition as distinct from potential competition, So precedent can change over time as the new regulators bring more cases and potentially the laws changes. But for now, we are sort of in a world where the courts may be less interested in hearing these um, expansive interpretations of the antitrust laws. I think if we jump into Europe, I mean, look, the, the courts still have a role here as well, notwithstanding it's a very different system. And from from my perspective, I think one of the interesting things is going to be, look, Competition authorities, you know, they can change their guidance, they can change their priorities, but they still need to act in accordance with the legal framework. Uh, I think the challenge in Europe for merging parties who don't like a decision from the competition authorities is actually those authorities are, are reasonably well protected. So the fact that it's not an appeal on the merits in Europe uh, or indeed in the UK means that prohibitions in practice are actually pretty infrequently challenged. Uh, which maybe isn't surprising. Merging parties don't necessarily have the appetite to spend time and resources on a deal that will probably have fallen over by the time they get to court. Uh, And I think that means that agencies are able to take uh, a stricter interpretation of the law, uh, having some comfort that, you know, unless they really stuff up the process, they're actually going to be insulated from appeal. That said, Although the EC has got a pretty enviable win rate in the courts, it it can't do entirely what it wants. And obviously, I should be mentioning that that Freshfields itself has led two major reversals in the EC recently, uh, one each on procedural and substantive grounds. So it is possible to turn them over, but but it's reasonably rare. Sasha, I don't know if that's your perspective as well. Yes, I agree. We, we always have this problem that you can uh, challenge a prohibition, but only after the deal is dead. So um, there is little incentive to challenge a death penalty after it's been uh, executed. Um, and, and we have that problem in Europe, which, um, which gives the Commission uh, quite a bit of discretion um, in practice. But as you say, I believe it is important, while we understand the pressures um, that the authorities are under, to keep insisting that they are acting uh, in a narrow legal framework and um, that major changes in policy cannot be just implemented from one day to another without any changes in laws. And so to the extent that something like this happens, 
we have seen that the, the courts are actually the allies of the merging parties, um, in particular in the Hutchison case. And maybe just the last thought on that. At the beginning of the 2000s, there have been three court losses of the Commission, which have resulted in a major overhaul of the European merger control system. And we have had several court losses of the Commission in, in recent years, but we haven't seen any major change of the practice so far, which may also be due to the, the fact that some of these decisions um, are still being appealed to the highest court. So it will indeed be interesting to see whether the guidance from the court um, then really trickles down into, into a change in practice on the ground. So Sasha, if I am sitting in a boardroom about to sign on the dotted line on a $10 billion deal, what does all this mean for me? What is the way through all of this? Well, I would say there's, for me, there's three or four key points. Uh, the first one is deal certainty and risk allocation will gain even more importance in the negotiation of the deal in the first place because of all of this uncertainty we are facing. Secondly, precedents are sometimes of low value today. So a deal which might have been doable uh, five years ago may no longer be doable today. And that's something which uh, we all have to realize because the climate has changed. And a third thing I would say is very important to perform a detailed and really honest merger feasibility study before the deal is signed, including by looking each other in the eye and asking, do we have a plan B? Do we have uh, a structural remedy, if possible, uh, if things turn out differently from uh, how we expect it to go? And finally, very important, uh, again, more important than before, I believe, to talk to the regulators and the public more widely about the deal rationale and explain why it's a good deal. Nobody expects companies to do deals for altruistic reasons, but it's important to explain that the merger has a compelling rationale, uh, which is not anti-competitive. Yeah, and look, I agree with all of that, Sasha. I mean, my list is maybe a little bit shorter. It's sort of expect the unexpected, prepare your transaction documents for the unexpected, uh, and third, instruct fresh fields. I, I second that as well. Um, you know, I guess one point to add there is make sure that the business is watching its documents because that's another thing that it, we are sort of paying attention to and that companies need to be sensitive to as we see this increased cooperation and increased scrutiny um, you know, be careful what documents say before you get to the deal table. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Megan, Sasha, Al, for a fascinating discussion. And, you know, of course, I think we'll be back on Essential Antitrust with more to say on all these topics as, as things continue to develop. But for the time being, thanks very much to everyone who, who tuned in. And we will see you next time with more Essential Antitrust. And look, Jen, maybe just before we finish, uh, we'd also like to firstly thank you for, for chairing this podcast. Uh, but secondly, just in case listeners are not yet aware, uh, Jen has recently been made a partner in the firm, which is a fantastic recognition uh, of all the skills that she has brought to her client practice, uh, to the teams that she runs and of course, uh, the services that she provides to the podcast industry. So Jen, well done to you. It's fantastic to have you as a partner in the team. Uh, thank you so much, Al. You're here, Jen. Thanks very much, Jen.